Hello, you're listening to the Sydney Writers' Centre podcast on writers and writing. My name is Valerie Koo and you can find us online at sydneywriterscentre.com.au. We're Australia's leading writing centre and you'll find a wealth of resources on our website and blog, including interviews with authors, writing tips and valuable ideas on how to get published and write with confidence. Whether you're interested in writing a novel, short story or articles for magazines, you'll find information and courses to help you get there. Or if you want to hone your business writing skills, we can help you too. Our presenters are the best in the industry. Our team is passionate about all things writing, and in these podcasts, we'll be talking to best-selling authors on their craft. We hope you enjoy today's podcast. Welcome to the Sydney Writers' Centre in Wilson's Point. I'm Rose Powell, and I'm joined today by Ramona Kavar, a book lover and book broadcaster on the ABC for many books. She's here to talk to us about her latest book, By the Book, a bookish memoir of how she discovered reading and what role it's played in her life. So, Ramona, thank you so much for joining us today. When did you decide to write a book-tinged memoir? Well, um, when I stopped being a broadcaster, I went and spoke to Michael Hayward at Text um, about another project that I had in mind that he was keen to uh, contract me for. But he had this idea. He said, you know what I'd really like to read? I'd like to read your book about reading. And I thought to myself, I'd like to read that too. In fact, I'd like to write it. Because it's true that I'd spent all of the last 25 years reading in all kinds of areas. And I noticed that when I came home from that meeting, I looked around me and I thought, what are all these books that I have around me? Why are they here? Why are these books that I've selected to bring home after all these years? Or some that I had from when I was a kid? Or some that I'd gathered all through my life and that's that. It's been saved through culls and and moves and all kinds of reads. So I sort of sat down and looked and I thought, well, there's a story here because what are all these books about polar exploration for? What are all these books um, about sort of the time between the wars in middle Europe? What are the science books for? Why are all the classics here? Um, And what story did they tell about my reading? So that's really what made me begin and what ended up with this book. It's such a huge topic to to tackle. How did you get started with the idea? Did you map it out? Did you start when you were little and work your way through? Well, um, I had my the sections that I thought, well, I must have a chapter on polar exploration, and I must have a chapter on travel books. I should have a chapter on learning languages because there's a whole shelf of all the languages that I've attempted to learn. So that sort of gave, gave me the idea of doing chapters. But then I thought, well, what does reading mean to me? And then I remembered learning to read. And I thought, I, you know, I'm a bit of a storyteller. I like a story that starts from the beginning. In fact, when people start at the middle, I have to stop them and make them go back to the beginning again. So I think it's my natural logic, logic sort of logical mind. Um, so I started at the beginning, and I imagined what it was like to learn to read. And then I remembered what it was like. I remembered episodes of in my life and books that were important to me. Mm-hmm. And then I found them on the internet. You know, you can find in, in second-hand um, bookstores on, on Google. And then I actually found the, the um, covers of some of the, the books, like the, that little naughty book. Um, and I remembered that cover. It was an orange cover with all sorts of um, skew-with um, uh, letters on, on the cover. And I remember 
that was the cover of the book that I that I was reading. So it was a very emotional and sentimental journey for me. Yeah, it would have been. I noticed throughout a lot of the books that you mentioned and how you approached them and which ones resonated with you. It was also kind of a little bit of a memoir of the relationship with you and your mother and realising she was a separate person as kids have to eventually. Mm. What was it like to write that for you? Well, it was interesting because it was, it was she was a bit of a mystery to me, my mother. Um, she was a Holocaust survivor. Um, she wasn't very well educated. She was a self-educated person. And she learned a lot of languages during her life with all the moves that she had to make. And she ended up in Australia speaking broken English and then getting better and better at it. Um, but she used books as her way through all her changes, that all the changes that she was making, all the changes she was interested in seeing in society, the feminist books and the books on sociology in the 60s and, and uh, the classics that she was reading too, and the banned books that she was reading. Um, so her, her reading influenced me. And um, when I went back to think about, you know, now I'm much older than she was when she died, so I can look back at her as if she was sort of a younger woman than me, and then think about her as a, a person rather than a mother. And I had some questions. I mean, I, I realised that when I was learning Russian and th thinking I was a young communist, she didn't ever help me with my Russian classes. So she obviously had a position there that she wasn't con wasn't conveying. Because why wouldn't you help your kid learn Russian if you thought if you spoke Russian? You know, but she didn't, and she started to give me books, or she started to read books like about the Gulag Archipelago um, by Solzhenitsyn, mm. or Cancer Ward, or some of these um, critique of the Soviet system books yeah. that she was reading, and then she would leave, and then I would read, and then I would get the idea that, you know, my um, my book about um, you know the Communist Manifesto and Orwell and all that down and out in uh, Paris and London might have another side to it. But I could see what she was doing. She was trying not to um, go at it sort of um, like a bull in a china shop, but she was being subtle in her own way. It's quite a lovely strategy of you know, putting the books that you'd like someone to read right next to them. Remember that you wrote about when you were 10, she walked you down to the library bus and signed you up for your library card, and you took home Kafka's The Trial at 10, and you felt that you held adulthood in the palms of your hand. Tell me about reading the trial as a ten-year-old. Well, I remember um, noticing that all the, the adult books were in this um, this library, very just next to the kids' books, and I was always intrigued by the world of adulthood. And I I think it was all those talking animals that weren't really attracting my attention. So I um, I noticed the K's the K section was down the bottom where I was on the floor reading. And so there was Kafka and, and Kerstler and Katzenzakis and I mean Kafka and Katzenzakis and Kerstler because it was alphabetical order. And I thought Kafka was a skinny one and it was quite small. I thought, oh, I could read this. And I opened up the first page and I thought, well, it's not really hard writing. So um, I remember reading it thinking, well, this is a book about a man who um, gets sort of woken up at his boarding house and he is, is being arrested for something. He doesn't know what, it, what, it's, what he's done. And it's not very complex, the writing isn't very complex. But the tale is um, about a sort of confusing, scary world. And a man who doesn't actually get 
what big trouble he's in. He's just assuming that he's just going to sort of go ahead and tell them that, of course, he hasn't done anything and they'll just let him go. And they sort of don't. It gets deeper and deeper. But it reminded me of Alice in Wonderland in that way too, of where she's in a world where she's strange things are happening to her and all the assumptions that she's had before are not working um, about height and, um, you know, and she cries when she's tall and then she's drowning in her own tears when she's made small and she's following her nose but it doesn't make sense and I thought, I thought this sort of absurdity appealed to me and it, and it was the same sort of absurdity in Kafka. Obviously at 10 I wouldn't have gotten all, all the other sort of political levels but it was a story that you can read on one level and, um, and be nourished by. And possibly at that age everything's quite confusing anyway so probably quite a good time to read it. Yeah. I was reading that you asked your mother to buy you the Kama Sutra at 12, um, and she did, and then she actually let you read it. Reading books like, you had a fairly unrestricted book diet as a, as a child and a young person. How do you think that shaped, not you as a reader, but kind of you as a human? Um, I think, well, um, I didn't realise it was unrestricted, because I, I didn't really talk about it to other kids. I didn't know what they were allowed to read and what they were not allowed to read. I just thought it was, you know, part of the world, and um, but it just given me a taste for um, unusual books, um, unusual ideas. Um, I like nothing better than to find out something, whether it's something about, you know, um, galaxies or sand or um, megafauna or bees, and. <laughs> start to Google it and look it up and find out an essay about it and find out a really great book about it and just you know, just go along on an interesting journey and unrestricted um, about anything in any way. I mean, it's just like the world is a huge book and, um, and we're here for a short time and I feel as if I just need to find out about as much as I can. Which would have, I guess, come through in your, your interest in science and milking your cat and yes. the experiments that you did. <laughs> That's right. My kids are really appalled by that. But um, so they didn't most see people are, actually. <laughs> most people think that, that milking a cat is a really odd thing to do. But I was, I was going through an experimental phase because I'd read a little biography of um, a chapter in a book of famous women. And Marie Curie was um, one of them. And I realised that her, she was named Maria Skłodowska, and her, she was Polish. And my parents were from Poland, so I thought, oh, they're Polish, she's Polish, I could do that. And so I set up this little laboratory in my mother's laundry, because um, I'd heard that if you take you know, samples. I mean, Marie Curie was a physicist, but I didn't really get into the making you know, um, pitch blend in the in the laundry and creating radioactivity. Oh no, I decided biology was my thing. And um, so I, I would take samples of things and grow them in pineapple jelly. So samples of, you know, various you know, things that are on the sink and the toilet and that sort of thing. But then I decided I would do the cat as well. So the cat's paw, getting the cat to put her paw in the jar and getting some, um, you know, what do they call those, um, you know, to, um, <laughs> just sort of cotton buds and getting a sample from her ear and then I thought, well she's just had kittens I wonder, 
I wonder whether how I could get some milk. So I sort of watched the little um, kittens, you know, how they press either side of the teeth. So I thought, oh, I can do that. So I lay down on the, on the floor and tried to press each side of her teat to see if I could get some milk. And then I thought, I wonder what it tastes like. So I, have a little, I had a little suck of her teat, at which point she took all the kittens away and hid them for six weeks and brought them back when they were almost grown up. And my mother said, where do you think the cat is? <laughs> I don't know. What do you think happened to her that she's hidden her kittens? I don't know nothing about it. No. When you were doing this, were you reading a lot of science books at the time? Were they fiction or non-fiction? No, you didn't need to read. You just needed to read one thing that yeah. said, you know, you could, you could grow interesting organisms if you take the samples correctly. So I left them and, you know, if you leave them for a few days, horrible things start to grow. Funguses and, you know, little black colonies and white colonies and green colonies. And then you just forget about them. And then your mother goes bananas when she finds them. Finds them later. When you were heading into uni, were you still reading as much or did the uni begin to dictate what you were reading? Well, I did science at university, yeah. so um, but I was still reading novels, um, like The Hundred Years of Solitude and um, what else was everyone reading? Catch-22, Joseph Heller. Um, and th oh, th things like um, The Poetry of Khalil Gibran and odd things like that. Um, Herman Hesse, um, the books that sort of uni students took seriously at the time were being passed around. What books would you say were, I guess, turning points or catalysts for you in your young adulthood? Um, I think that um, one of the important books that was given to me was when I had my daughter. Um, I was in my honours year and I had my first child. And I um, had a friend who was working in the next laboratory to mine, Sally Morrison, who just also turned into a, uh, turned into a writer. But she gave me this book. Um, I took my thesis to university because I thought that I was just going to be able to finish it while I was having the baby. Which is so, that's how silly I was. And she said, no, no, you won't. You'll only get time to read a short story from now on. And then try these. And there were... Um, I think um, enormous changes at the last minute and little disturbances of man. Two short story collections by an American writer called Grace Paley. And I read them and I just, the voice in them was the vo a voice that really appealed to me. And I, you know, I adored reading these little stories. And I en ended up interviewing Grace Paley later on and, and meeting, well, meeting her in New York and spending a morning with her walking around Manhattan. So, and it was funny because a lot of those stories are simply about women who meet up and walk around and, and talk. And there I was doing it, doing exactly that. Does she talk how she writes? Yeah. Is the voice the same? Yeah, absolutely. When you were writing this book, was there a lot of books or things you had to leave out? Because it's a lovely, elegant, short story, really. Well, yeah, there were lots of books I had to leave out. I didn't talk about a whole lot of poetry that I have at home and... Um, I mean, there are all kinds of books that I, I didn't write about, but that would have been like an encyclopedia of books. That would have been, yes. <laughs> when you were writing it, I was remembering the chapter on writing and travelling and reading and travelling. I understand that there are multiple, I guess, approaches to what you read while you're travelling, if you read in the country you're in, 
Having tried a couple of approaches, what would you recommend now? I, I, I like to read about the country I'm in when I'm in it. Mm -hmm. And I like to read about the history of the place that I'm, I'm in. So I've just been to this, um, Spain and um, I read Homage to Catalonia when I was in Barcelona and George Orwell's book about the Spanish Civil War. And, um, and I went to the, um, I went to Granada and went to the Alhambra, um, this sort of 14th century Muslim um, castle on a hill. And I read Tales of the Alhambra by Washington Irving, which was a 19th century American writer. And it was fantastic because he'd been, he'd been in the same rooms that I had been in. And they hadn't changed, obviously, because that's why they why you go to see it, because it's this preserved, fantastic place there. And I, I loved his impressions of the place, and they were the ones that I had just been in that day. And also, it was funny because um, when you were reading about going to Spain and um, and, and the economic problems, and the one of the, somebody I read about said, "Oh, you should take a kind of decoy wallet." So you've got your passport and you've got some money in your money belt, which is under your clothes, under your jeans. But then you should have a decoy wallet. So you just go, you know, get a cheap Kathmandu wallet for 20 bucks or something and then put 10 euros in it. And if someone holds you up in the street, you give them this wallet and they run away because it's your wallet. But actually, you've got more money, haha, in your other wallet. So, so I was reading this. And then, and then that's exactly what happened to Washington Irving, because he said that um, as he was coming across the plains in, in 1840 or something like that, he had a decoy wallet so that um, when people held him up, he could give them something because they were, they'd get very angry if they, because they were working, and if they didn't get a reward for working, then, you know, they would bash you up. So I thought the same advice, exactly isn't that fantastic? Yeah. And, and centuries on. So, yeah, exactly. One of the themes that does run through your books is books as a way to understand life and history and how it influences what we're doing, especially with your parents as Holocaust survivors. Were there key books for you in terms of discovering and really understanding the Holocaust? Because it's one of those topics that I think a lot of people feel like they get it but we probably don't. Were there key books for you? Um, well, I didn't really... I never really made a practice of reading about the Holocaust just mm. because it was so horrible. Mm. And, I, and I could see that my parents were very disturbed by it and my whole circle was very disturbed by it. And I knew something bad had happened. It was just really awful. And um, once my father showed me some photographs from Auschwitz which really disturbed me and upset me and I just eschewed really an interest in, in that. Um, I read the, the Diaries of Anne Frank when I was a girl, because that was, it was a, I think everyone read it at school. And I think everyone does read it at yeah, school. Right. But I was more interested in her romance between her and Peter in the, um, in the attic and her getting her period in the attic. And this was all, you know, I was, you know, I was interested in the love interest. And I really didn't really understand why they were in the attic. I mean, I knew why they were in the attic, but I didn't understand how they got there and what the sort of social political situation around it was. But when I grew up a, a bit, I mean, I read Elie Wiesel's book, um, If This Is a Man and a Knight, um, who was a survivor of Auschwitz. But of course, he says himself, only those who died really knew what it was like. So they're not telling. 
There are lots of wonderful Australian authors. I'm not going to ask you for a favourite. Who have been the kind of key Australian voices that have spoken to you in your decades of reading? Well, you know, Christina Stead, um, her book The Man Who Loved Children was very important to me. Um, and, I mean, I didn't... I mean, they didn't really make a practice of reading Australian writers when I was growing up. Mm. And, in fact, um, you know, Text, who's my publisher, has done this most wonderful thing last year and, and this year and, and will continue next year to, to publish um, classics that, you know, the lost books, the books that have gone out of, of our minds and our memories. And I have started to read those. And, um, you know, I, I think we read The Getting of Wisdom, Henry Hammond Richardson at school and Christina Stead. But since then, I have read Elizabeth Harrower. And I never read Elizabeth Harrower, and she was published in the 60s. Her book, The Watchtower, was published last year. And it's such an ama amazing book. And I'm now reading um, The Long Prospect, which is the second book that Tex has published of hers. She's still alive. She lives in Sydney. She's in her 80s. And she's a lost classic, and it's marvellous to be able to say, you know, well, I think I think she's she understands now that people are finding her again. And Patrick White, I mean, I I, um, I uh, wasn't, you know, I didn't know read a lot of Patrick White when I was younger, but recently I've read Patrick White and um, realising that um, he's a, just a marvellous, interesting writer, complex. Um, so people like that, and, and we need to rediscover them. Helen Garner, um, a, a marvellous writer. Um, I just would read anything that she would write. It's been interesting with the release of the text classics and uh, I guess a strengthening sense of Australian fiction, seeing how we talk about it. I remember an article came out in August that was said that the Australian book cultural criticism is too nice. As your role as a broadcaster for decades, do you... Would, what's your opinion on that? Look, I was, uh, I had to read so much to do a daily show that I couldn't. Want, I didn't want to read things that were not, that didn't make me interested, and I wasn't happy to read mm -hmm. because I would find that torturous, and I couldn't actually get into a book and really devour it if I wasn't enjoying it. So there were books that I didn't cover because I thought that's not my cup of tea. Um, so my philosophy was, I'm going to tell you about a book that I adore, and this is why you might like to read it too. And so I suppose I am, maybe I'm guilty of being too nice, but I just didn't have the time to be awful to people's books that I thought, well, maybe it's just not going to appeal to me. It, I mean, there is a place for, for criticism, of course, and we should have critics and we should have someone who will be able to tell us how a book fits in with a canon or mm. how a book fits in with a tradition or you know where the book has come from and where it fits and um, and I think that that's that's important to do um, but I can't see the point of being vicious about people's books I can't see the point about sort of playing the man and not the ball I mean there has there are some rather vicious critics that I've read that you think you know there's obviously something else going on this is not about yeah. the book I think it's about you know being um, miffed at a party somewhere, or someone taking their someone taking their lover away from them, or something. You think this is there's some other deep reason why this person is so aggro about this book. Um, so, um, but on the other hand, because there's always another hand, 
It's a very small culture, mm-hmm. and people are often unwilling to review books of others. Um, you know, Australian writers will be unwilling to review another Australian writer because that other Australian writer might be reviewing their book yeah. in a few months, and they don't want to set up a difficult situation. So both things are true. Are you working on another book? I am. Moment? I'm working on another book. Can you give us a hint well, about look, what it is? It's a hint. It's a book about um, about evidence, genetics. Um, it's part memoir. Um, it's 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 really um, a book about how we know what we know and whether it's important to know where we're from. Okay, it sounds amazing. <laughs> well, I hope it'll be amazing. And finally, what's your advice to to other writers? To write. That's my advice. Just do it. You know, um, don't wait until um, the best time, and don't wait until the, you've got the best room, and don't wait until you've got the best pen or the best journal. Um, just do it. Just write, and don't make excuses. And, and work, and work in other areas, because everything you do is, is um, feeding into you, your vision as a writer and as a, as a human being. And on that note, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for asking. You've been listening to the team from the Sydney Writers' Centre podcast on writers and writing. My name's Valerie Koo. You can find us online, including details about our courses, seminars and online learning programs where we help students from all over the world. I'm author of the book Power Stories, the eight stories you must tell to build an epic business. And you can find out more on my personal website, ValerieKoo.com. That's ValerieKoo, K-H-O-O.com. Thank you for listening.